Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 604. And he concludes the chapter by saying that the intent that a person has that he's studying Torah and doing mitzvahs in order to connect with Hashem, that's 100% genuine. Because every neshama deep down wants to connect with Hashem. That's our primary motivation. So much so that we're ready to surrender our soul, we're ready to sacrifice ourselves before Hashem. We're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice. He says everyone is ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for Hashem. Surrender our soul to Hashem. But there is a moment when we actually do surrender our soul to Hashem. The person passes away. At that moment, you're surrendering your soul to Hashem. That is literally Mesirat Nefesh. Mesirat Nefesh always refers to self-sacrifice, martyrdom, ready, ready to give up your life for Hashem. But literally, Mesirat Nefesh, surrendering your soul. When a person dies, the person is surrendering his soul to Hashem. And what is the soul engaged in when you surrender, when you make the ultimate surrender, when you actually surrender your soul back to Hashem? At that moment, your soul is engaged in one thing, Torah. There's nothing else. The words and letters of Torah. That's your whole being. When you give up your body, and you surrender your soul back to Hashem, you give your soul back, you return your soul back to Hashem. At that moment, what is your soul? What is your soul all about? You have no possessions, you have no acquisitions, you leave your bank accounts behind. At that moment, what are you all about? What is your being? What is your essence? Is Hashem, Torah, and mitzvah. Torah, letters of Torah, you're thinking the words of Torah, the letters of Torah. So when a person wants to cleave to Hashem, when a person wants to surrender your soul to Hashem while you're alive, while you're healthy and alive, how do you surrender your soul to Hashem? How can you reach a state of Mesirat Nefesh, a state of surrendering your soul to Hashem when your soul is occupied in Torah? At that moment, you're surrendering your soul to Hashem. Because at that moment, what are you occupied with? What are you engaged with? You're not engaged with anything material, with anything physical. You're engaged with Hashem, with godliness, with His Torah and His mitzvah. So at that moment, you're delivering your soul to Hashem, you're surrendering your soul to Hashem, without leaving the body, without dying. But you're surrendering your soul back to Hashem. And he explains that's what that's the meaning of the introductory blessing in the morning. One of the first blessings that we make. Hashem, the soul that you gave me is pure. You created it, you formed it, 
you made it, you blew it into my nostrils, you protect it, and you will take it back one day. <laughs> when you're waking up in the morning all refreshed, a new day of existence, a new day ahead, why are you reminding yourself, one day my soul will be taken from me? <laughs> That's the contrary, exact opposite of what you're of what you're mentioning. The whole idea of this blessing is you're thanking Hashem for returning your soul. Why are we remembering that one day the soul will leave? And the answer is, what we're telling ourselves is, that since one day the soul, you'll surrender your soul back to Hashem, and you'll leave your body behind. So what is your essence all about? What are you all about? It's not about your body, your material, your possessions, your acquisitions, your indulgences, your instant gratification. That's not, what you're, that's not what your soul is about. The soul that's everlasting, that's eternal, that's the real you. That's who you really are. There'll come a moment when your soul, when you'll surrender your soul back to Hashem. And all you'll have is the soul in its purity. And what is the soul occupied with and engaged with at that moment? The words and letters of Torah. Therefore, today, now, as I wake up this morning, I'm going to dedicate my day to surrender my soul to Hashem. How do you surrender your soul to Hashem? Now, here and now, today. When I study Torah and I do mitzvahs, every act of Torah, every act of mitzvahs, is really surrendering your soul to Hashem. Because it's not ego. What motivates you to study Torah and do mitzvah? It's not ego. So just like when a person dies, who dies when you die? Your ego dies. Your soul continues to live. You surrender your soul. Your soul goes back home. It reconnects to its source, to Hashem. What dies? Your ego dies. So today, when you study Torah and you do mitzvah, it's not an ego your ego doesn't tell you to study Torah and do mitzvahs. Your ego tells you to do business or to not acquire. To or not to study, not to do mitzvahs. It's a pure act of misirat nefesh. It's an act of surrendering your soul to Hashem. You're not doing anything egotistical. It's not about self-preservation, ego, self. I'm studying Hashem's Torah. I'm studying Hashem's words and letters. I'm doing His mitzvahs. So it's a pure act of self-sacrifice. It's an act of egolessness. It's an act of surrendering your soul to Hashem. How about somebody who's not uh, orthodox, let's say, and he dies, and he's surrendering his soul to Hashem. But, uh, you know, he's not surrendering mitzvahs and Torah and all that. I mean, you know, earlier we are talking about Kalah Yisrael, Right? So, many of these people who are part of Israel, they, they don't know anything about Torah and mitzvahs and this and that. And is that still, still a Messiris Hashem? Messiris Nef. Yeah. Well, firstly, it's all due to ignorance, but at the moment of truth, the moment before a person passes away, it's a moment of truth. You know that your body, your ego is about to come to an end. So your being, your identity, really has nothing to do with your ego. It says the last moment before a person dies, he sees God. Torah says you can't see God and live. That moment you die. 
what happens when you see God? You realize that your life, everything that you live for, everything that occupied your attention, that you engaged your mind and that engaged your heart, all your ego pursuits, it's a joke. It's absolutely meaningless. It means absolutely nothing. In the scheme of things, in the absolute scheme of things, in that moment of truth, you realize that all your ego pursuits is, is, is nothing, is meaningless. And that's the moment of death. That's the moment of transition. That's the moment that you deliver your soul back to, to, to its creator, to Hashem. Your soul goes back home. So whether you're aware of it or not, we're on page 604. Whether you're aware of it or not, the truth, that is the truth. The truth is, we make a mistake. We think that we are human beings that have spiritual experiences. It's the exact opposite. We are spiritual beings that happen to have human experiences. Essentially, we are souls. That is our being. That is our identity. That is the truth. The physical, the body is temporary. And when a person passes away and you surrender your soul back to Hashem, that's a moment of truth. Then it emerges what your true being is, what remains, what's lasting, what's eternal, what's everlasting, and what's temporary and ephemeral, and is buried. The body, the material, your possessions, your possessiveness, your ego comes to an abrupt halt, an abrupt end, but your soul lives on. So that is your essence. Your essence is your surrender, your connection with the divine, your connection you the godly connection. That's who you are. That remains forever. That's everlasting. And at the end of your life, that's when you surrender your soul back to Hashem. You can live every moment like that. You can live, a mo- you can live that moment of truth. You can repeat that moment of truth, not by dying, but by living how you live. You can live every moment of your life based on that truth and that moment of truth. Every moment of your life could be a moment that's connected to that truth where you surrender your soul back to its source. When you pursue something that's not egotistical, when you study Torah, you do a mitzvah, it's not your ego that's telling you to study Torah and doing mitzvah, it's purely divine, it's purely godly. And yet it occupies your mind, it occupies your heart, it occupies your attention, it occupies your time. There's no ego pursuit here. I can't put it into the bank. It's a purely godly act. It's a pure act of self-sacrifice. It's an act of surrendering your soul back to its source. It's coming back home. It's coming alive, being true to your real self, your genuine self. So imagine if you can live, the moment of passing is really a moment of truth. You're going into the world of truth. At that moment, people don't lie. People tell the truth. Even in the court of law, when a person says something right on his deathbed, you trust it. Because at that moment, people are not lying. You know, your whole life could be filled with lies. But when a person is on his deathbed, it's not a time to lie. There's no diplomacy. There's no lying. You tell it like it is. It's truthful. It even has legal implications. So you can live your life. And this is what we say in the blessing in the morning. Since one day eventually you, my, I will surrender my soul back to its creator, which is the ultimate act of Mesirat Nefer, of dying, of surrendering, of going back home. So I can live that truth today while I'm alive and healthy and well. I don't have to die. No one has to die and no one has to... The only sacrifice I have to make is study Torah and do a mitzvah. 
but it's coming home. I'm reconnecting. So I'm surrendering my soul back to its creator. I'm reconnecting. And I'm going beyond my ego. This is an, it's not an egotistical act. It's a purely selfless act. It's a purely divine act. When a Jew studies Torah and does a mitzvah, it's a purely divine act. But it's a genuine act. So I can live that moment every day of my life. And that's what we say in the first blessing. That's why it's such a powerful statement. Hashem, you breathed into me. You gave me a soul, a pure soul. You protect my soul. And one day, my soul, you will, my soul, I will surrender my soul back to you. Therefore, I want to live my life today according. I want to surrender my soul to you today. While I'm alive and healthy. How do I surrender my soul to you today? By studying Torah and doing a mitzvah. That's the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. Mesir nefesh. While I'm alive and healthy. Wouldn't we prefer that? Instead of dying for God, how about living for God? And it's not just dying for God. That's my essence. That's my soul. That's where my soul feels at home. That's where my soul comes home. When when you study Torah and do a mitzvah, it's almost like your soul gets a reprieve. Your soul is refreshed. Your soul comes back home. So when you're engaged, most of your day you're engaged in the material world, pursuing your career, or eating, or drinking, or sleeping, or all the material pursuits. That's foreign and alien to the soul. But when you pray, when you're reading a psalm, when you're studying Torah, when you're doing mitzvah, when you're doing an act of goodness and kindness, you're giving tzedakah, that's a genuine moment. That's when the soul comes home. That's when the soul feels alive. That's when you're surrendering your soul to Hashem. Without dying. While you're alive. What a powerful statement. What a, what a beautiful way to live your life. So that's a genuine moment. Now, he says, it's enough in the beginning of the day, just to set the tone for the day, to make this blessing, to make this statement, and to orient yourself that I'm going to dedicate my day to surrender my soul back to Hashem, to reconnect my soul back to Hashem, to bring my soul back home. So he says, it's enough just to have this thought in the beginning of the day. And this sets the tone for the rest of the day. Because obviously when you're busy studying Torah, you can't constantly be thinking about reconnecting your soul, bringing your soul back home, surrendering your soul. You're busy studying the piece of Talmud. It's a naughty piece of Talmud. It's a naughty piece of Torah. You have to engage your mind. You have to think about it. You have to concentrate on what you're learning. You can't be thinking at the same time about surrendering your soul back to Hashem. About See, it's enough. In Jewish law, it's enough. Even those mitzvot that require intent, kavanah. For example, when you write a Torah scroll, you must have the intent that you're writing a Torah scroll, lishma for its own sake. So, but you can't busy. You can't write, and at the same time, constantly be thinking that I'm writing the Torah for the for its own sake. It's enough that when you start out to write, you say, "I'm writing the Torah lishma for its own sake," and that sets the tone for the writing. Then, as you write, you rely on that original thought. So too, it's enough that we make this blessing right when we wake up in the morning, and this sets the tone for the whole day. 
that this is my kavana, this is my direction, this is where I'm going towards, this is what I'm all about. And now he's going to say, when the bottom of page 604, that the truth is, that even when a person is engaged in studying of Torah for many, many hours, he says, every hour, on the hour, you should stop. Just like you have the news break every hour and the hour, you need to mark the hour. The top of the hour, every hour and the hour you should stop and very briefly think about, what am I doing? What am I doing here? What am I studying Torah? What's, what, what is this all about? What's my motivation? There's a divine motivation. It's a pure act of self-sacrifice. My mind is engaged in the divine in the divine words and divine letters and divine thoughts thought process in the Torah divine wisdom I'm doing a mitzvah I'm doing something godly something selfless and this is genuine and this is my personal act of self-sacrifice it's my personal act of surrendering my soul to Hashem reconnecting and bringing it back home to its source and then continue learning just have this thought very briefly just a reminder a refresher. Just to, because otherwise your mind could wander or you forget. It's so easy to forget what it's all about. You always have to keep yourself centered. You always have to keep yourself focused. So as long as you set the tone at the beginning of the day, it's enough, a short reminder. You don't need anything long. Brief reminder. Like it explains why is the prayer of Mincha the afternoon prayer is so short, so brief. In the morning, we have a very long prayer. Take an hour till you get to the climax, the Shemot Esrei, the silent prayer. You have a whole introduction. And levels and levels, and you climb the rungs of the ladder till you reach the highest rung, till you get to heaven. You have to work your way up. The evening service is also, you have Shema, you have the blessings before, the blessings after. It's shorter than the morning prayer, but it's still a relatively longer prayer. Mincha, you jump right in, you dive right into the Shemona Esrei, to the silent prayer. No introduction. So besides the fact that you already set the tone in the morning, you set the tone for the day. Once you set the tone for the day, you're focused, you're centered, you're connected, then you just need a reminder, a quick reminder. Middle of the day, you're busy, you're doing your business, or the Torah scholar is busy studying his, his, his program of studying Torah. You just need a quick reminder. But it says the ability to tear yourself away in the middle of the business. That act of sacrifice, of tearing yourself away in the middle of the business, to be able to pray, to put your business on the side and put everything on the side and start praying in the middle of the office, in the middle of a business day, that act of self-sacrifice propels you right to the top of the ladder. You don't need any, any preparations. You're ready to get straight to the point. Because that act of self-sacrifice that really connects you very strongly. And even for the Torah scholar, even someone who doesn't do business, his whole day is immersed in holiness and Torah. All day and all night he studies. It's like Shabbat, all day and all night for, for him. For the rabbi, the Torah scholar, but even for him, it's a tremendous self-sacrifice. Because here, he's busy delving into a juicy piece of Talmud. And his creative mind is figuring out a complex, a puzzling piece of Talmud. And he's figuring out and he's making sense of it. It's very satisfying. It's very intellectually satisfying. And suddenly in the middle he has to close the Gemara, close the Talmud and start praying. 
in a way, it's a greater self-sacrifice for the Torah scholar than it is for the businessman. Because he's just figuring out and to tear himself away from that pleasure and start thinking about Hashem. So that's why that also propels him straight to the top. He doesn't need any preparation. He can go straight to the point. So to here, in the middle of the day, while you're learning, you don't need any long preparations. Just for a moment. Just to tear yourself away just for a moment. Stop. Pause. Recollect your thoughts. Collect your thoughts. Focus. Center yourself. What's it all about? What am I doing here? Why am I studying Torah? This is not math, science, physics. It's not intellectual exercise. It's something divine. It's godly. It's an act of self-sacrifice. It's a purely selfless, egoless act of surrendering my soul to Hashem. And that's enough. Once you have that thought, now you can dive right back into the studying of the, of the, of the, of the Talmud of the Torah. In the bottom of page 604. And when he studies for a number of consecutive hours, he should reflect on the preparedness referred to above at least at hourly intervals. For in each hour there is a different flow from the higher worlds to animate those who dwell here below, while the flow of vitality from on high of the previous hour returns to its source. In accordance with the esoteric principle of advancing and retreating, expounded in Sefer Yetzirah, as the divine life force animates the world alternatively, Advancing and retreating, it is first drawn down into this world, and then it returns to its source in the higher spiritual worlds. Each hour, then, the creative life force of the previous hour returns to its source. So the Book of Formation, attributed to Abraham, Avram Avinu, one of the oldest Kabbalah books, written by one of the greatest masters of Kabbalah, Abraham, explains that the divine energy that creates the world so divine energy flows into the world but then immediately is withdrawn it goes back to its source and then it flows again and it goes back to its source it's like the breathing process you breathe in then you breathe out it's constant like the pulse of life it's pulsating it's back and forth why is why is the pulse of life back and forth you breathe in you breathe out because the soul, the energy makes contact with the body, but then the soul withdraws. And it makes contact again, and then it withdraws. And it's this, it's this constant bad dance, it's back and forth, that enables the body and the soul to come together. So it enables the divine energy to flow and to contact, contact and to connect with the, with the world. So it's this, it's this constant dance, because the divine energy is infinite, is undefined, is infinite. And the divine energy flows and creates something that's very finite. So the energy withdraws back to its original state, and then it draws outward to give animation, to give life to a finite being. So it, the only way it can, it, can, it can accomplish this is only by going back and forth, by, by, by here, back and forth. So, so it's flowing from the source, from Hashem. World. Just the opposite. It flows from the supernal world to this world and then back to its source and then back. From the top down and then the the energy goes back to its source, withdraws to its source. And then it comes back again. It's sent back down into this world and then it comes back. It can't stay. It always it's it, it has to be a dynamic back and forth because it remains divine, it remains infinite and undefined. 
So it can't be contained in the physical and material world. So the energy like touches, touches base, and then it goes back to its source. And then touches base again and touches back to its source. When you say touches base, that means touches... Touches us and it animates us. Not only us, but all, all the worlds. All the, all the higher realms, spiritual realms, all the worlds. The divine energy is constantly creating everything in this world, us. So every hour, and it says in the book of Yitzhira, in the book of formation, that every hour represents a different energy. And that's why every hour has a different energy to it. Just like every day has a different energy to it. You have Sunday, you have Monday, you have Tuesday, you have different energies. So to every hour has a different energy to it. So much so, it depends when you're born, the hour that you're born in, the day that you're born in, the hour of the day that you're born in, has an influence. Because every hour every has a special energy within the day itself. So if you have 24 hours, every hour has its own energy. And so therefore, once every hour, at the top of the hour, you have to stop and think and reflect about the kavanah, the divine purpose of your studying Torah. Because it's a new energy. So it's a new energy, so I have to need a new kavanah, I need a new intention, a new set of intentions. And that, that gives me, that sets me straight, that sets the tone for the next hour. Now it's a new hour, so the previous energy goes back, is withdrawn back to its source. Now there's a new flow, a new divine energy, a new flow. It's a different energy. But therefore, I have to... It's like, it's like I'm a new person. I'm being recreated. Again. Time is being recreated. The world is being recreated. It's a new energy. And therefore, I need a new kavana to fit, to, to fit this moment, this energy. Yesterday, last moment's kavana is not good for this moment. Maybe that explains why we go through so many moods and emotions. <laughs> the kaleidoscope. Because we're constantly changing. The world is dynamic. The world is it's not the same. You're not the same this hour the way you were an hour before, the way you'll be an hour later. So we're not too sensitive. But the truth is, the world is dynamic, and every hour there's a shift, there's a change. It's a new energy, a new fresh dynamic energy. And therefore, every hour in the hour, you should stop for a moment and think about the divine, the klishma, the intent. Why am I studying Torah? That it's an act of self-sacrifice. It's an act of surrendering my soul to Hashem. It's an act of reconnecting to my source. This is the Tanya that's talking in terms of the life force animates the world. How come we didn't learn this from Torah? Or, in other words, this is like the first time that I'm hearing this. After learning all Torah and well, every Jew should learn Tanya, and they'll know about it. No, but I'm You're right. Understand. If you don't learn, you don't know. Yeah, 100%. Okay, but before Tanya, I, I mean, was there a, a way to have understood this from the Bible? You know, we're talking about learning Torah. Wasn't there a way to, like, understand this? Well, this was the revelation. This was the revelation of the Baal Shem Tov. That's why Hashem sent the soul of the Baal Shem Tov into this world. That's why he revealed the Hasidic teachings. That's why he revealed the Tanya. Because it revealed to us, it didn't create anything new. The Tanya just opened our eyes. It turned on the switch, turned on the light bulb, and opened our eyes to these truths. No, but Abraham must have somehow intuitively understood this yes, too, right? Maybe, maybe, I'm sure they knew it intuitively. But, uh, but Hasidus is what is the Baal Shem Tov is the one who publicized it. 
And the Vashemtiv is the one who made it known to all of us. And the Vashemtiv is the one who taught us how to live accordingly, how these truths affect our lives. If Hashem is creating the world each and every moment, and to learn in greater detail, you should learn the second part of Tanya, which you can listen to online, lessonsintanya.com, the second part of Tanya, Shari Yichud Vemuna, the gate of unity and faith. That whole section discusses this idea that the world is constantly being recreated, not only every hour, every moment. That's what the entire second section of the Tanya is dedicated to, which we already covered, it's all recorded, and you can find it online. Um, but you're right, without, of course, it all says in the Torah, everything is hinted in the Torah. But no one really understood it, no one talked about it, no one really. The Baal Shem Tov went to town with, with it. The Baal publicized it. The Baal Shem Tov made this a life altering insight. And, um, and that's the Hasidic teachings. That's why you're right. Hasidus is not, is not an option, it's a necessity. Because how can a Jew be a true Jew unless you know this? Not only you know it intellectually, but really internalize this idea that Hashem is creating the world each and every moment because it dramatically changes everything. It changes your life. It changes everything. It changes your whole perspective on, on Hashem and your relationship to Hashem, how intimate you are with Hashem. Your whole being, your whole existence is so intimate with Hashem. Of course, it changes. It's, it's revolutionary. That's why Hasidus is revolutionary. That's why there was so much opposition to it. Because it was very threatening. The status quo. Because this, this is revolutionary stuff. You can't learn this stuff and remain indifferent. It's going to dramatically transform you, elevate you, change you. And um, so this is very powerful. Absolutely. But here he's quoting the book of Yitzira, which was authored by Avram Avinu. One of the oldest books of Kabbalah. That every hour, there's a change of energy. There's a change, the energy that flows from Hashem into this world. And then the energy is withdraw, withdraws back to its source. And then there's a new flow, like when you breathe. You breathe in and then you breathe out. and It's constant back and forth, like a pulse. Constant back. The life energy is, draws down and then it draws back to its source. Together with all the Torah and good deeds of those who dwell so every hour all the Torah that you study during this hour and all the good deeds when the divine energy goes back to its source it takes with it it connects all the Torah and all the mitzvah that you did reconnects to its source and now you have a new divine energy so now I need a new kavanah it's like a new reality I need a new intent continue for each for each of the 12 hours of the day there rules one of the 12 combinations of the letter that form the four-letter name of Hashem, while the combination of the letters that comprise the divine name Adonai rule at night as it is known. He says, the name Hashem, Yud Kevavke, made up of four letters. So you have many combinations you can make from these letters. So too you have the name as it's written Adonai, Aleph Dalad Nun Yud, also four letters. So how many combinations, how many different words could you make from these four letters? So the rule is... Here's the rule. If you have two letters, you can make two combinations. You have three letters, then you can make three times two. Six combinations. 
You have four letters? It's four times six. 24. So you have 24 combinations. So why does he say that the name Yudke Vavke only correspond to the 12 hours? It should be 24 hours. It should be 12 combinations. So someone answer, someone explain. Because Yudke Vavke, two of the letters are the same letter. Hey. So since you have two of the same letters, but you have four letters, so you, but you only have like three different letters. You have four letters, but three different letters. Therefore, they say, therefore you only have 12, you have 12 combinations, not 24 combinations. But it's not so simple, because he says that the name Adonai, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, which are four different letters, correspond to the 12 hours of the night. There's four letters. There should be 24 combinations, not 12 combinations, the word Adonai. Four letters make, you have 24 different possible combinations, 24 different words. So why only 12 hours of the night? Also, the name Yudke Vavke, the original hay and the last hay are not in the same level. One is a lower hay, one is a higher hay, different levels of Hashem, one is a higher level, lower level. So therefore you should have 24 combinations, not 12. So the Rebbe explains, he says, yes, it's true. A letter, a word that's made up of four letters has 24 combinations. But not all of those 24 combinations correspond to the hours of the day. Out of those 24 combinations, 12 out of them, 12 out of the 24 combinations correspond to the days, the 12 hours of the day. And 12 of the 24 combinations of the word Adonai correspond to the 12 hours of the night. But there are two different letters of Hashem. Which is why when the Alter Rebbe was sitting, the author of the Tanya was sitting in prison, and it was pitch black, you couldn't tell in prison if it was day or night, and they would intentionally try to confuse you, it was day and night. So how did the Alter Rebbe know when to put on the tefillin, when to put on the talus and the tefillin, when it was day, when it was morning? So he said, he said he knew by the letters. The Alter Rebbe sensed the divine energy. He sensed the flow of the divine energy. See, when he sends the letters Adnai, he knew it was night. And when he sends the letters Yudke he knew it was day. And by the different combinations of the letters, variations, he knew it was dawn, it was the first hour of the day, the second hour, when it was time for Mincha. He had a different clock <laughs> than you and I watch. He didn't need the external clock. He had a divine clock that he felt and sensed and was able to tell the difference of the time of the day because he had different energy. Yudke Vavke is Hashem's manifest name when Hashem is revealed. That's the day. The sun is shining. Adnai is where Hashem hides himself, conceals himself. That's the night. That represents the night. The darkness, the concealment. So you have different energies. Every hour and the hour has a different energy. Just like you have a different prayers, you have a time for shachar's energy, it's a morning energy, and you have afternoon energy, and you have an evening energy. Different energies. And more specific, every hour has a different energy. Of course, the truth is, every minute, every letter, every second has an energy. But, but in general, every hour has a unique energy. A different combination of these of the words Yudke Vavke, a different combination of the word Adnai, Hashem's name, and which channels the energy and is a different flow, a different channeling of an energy. So therefore, since the divine energy is unique, is, is different, therefore the energy, the creation is also a little different. 
therefore the Torah mitzvah that you're going to study in this hour, you're going to accomplish in this hour, needs its own kavanah, its own intention. You have to focus yourself, you have to center yourself at the beginning of the hour, the hour and the hour, and therefore set the tone for this coming hour. Which is the highest hour in the day? Change every day? Well, you know, which is the highest hour? I mean, there's many advantages... Every hour is unique. The first, of course, dawn is very special, very powerful. Um, sunrise is very powerful. It says a person should pray with sunrise. Um, midday, I mean, every, every time is very special. The night, although the night is a time of darkness, but after midnight, it starts getting lighter. Midnight is a time of intimacy. It's a time of closeness time of relationship so you know every every time has its flavors its unique flavor its unique energy if you're in tune if you're in tune you, you, you can sense different energies there's some people who are morning people there's some people their minds work best in the morning they wake up early their minds as sharp as a whistle at night they're useless some people they don't wake up their minds don't wake up till at night when the office is closed and they already go, got home from work, that's when they wake up. <laughs> that's when their minds wake up. I mean, you have different people. Everyone is wired differently. Everyone has different energies. It doesn't make you worse. It doesn't make you better. It's just, just the way you are. You have to know your strengths. Some people are night owls. Some people are early birds. So, you know, everyone is wired to a different energy. You have different uh, times, different energies, different... Uh, Speaking of the form of service that was earlier deemed surrender of the soul, the author will now go on to say that it should be undertaken not for the sake of returning the soul to its original source, but only to cause God pleasure. Now, all one's intent in the surrender of his soul to God through Torah and prayer to elevate the spark of godliness therein in the soul back to its source should be solely for the purpose of causing him gratification like the joy of a king when his only son returns to him after having been released from captivity or imprisonment as has been explained earlier. Since your intent is, your Torah mitzvot is an act of self-sacrifice, of surrendering your soul to Hashem, so therefore you should think about Hashem. Don't think about yourself. Think about the tremendous joy that it gives Hashem besides the tremendous joy that it gives you because for you it's a homecoming it's coming home the soul feels at home this soul in this world this world feels alien to the soul it's hostile it's hostile it's alien you're a soul a spiritual being that's in a very foreign environment an alien environment so for you, the whole soul is very... The whole experience, human experience with the soul is very alien. It's almost like the soul suffers from existential angst. The soul is suffering. The soul doesn't feel comfortable. From the, ba- the moment the baby cries, when the baby is born, the soul doesn't stop crying. The soul is constantly crying. The soul feels existential angst. The soul doesn't feel comfortable. What am I doing in this world? I don't belong here. I'm a stranger. This whole world is foreign and alien. And the soul can never get used to it. You think if you lie, and you get used to lying, you think it makes it easier on your soul? You think your soul, if a person gets used to sinning, 
and this just does it, it becomes habit, it doesn't even think about it. You think it gets easier on the soul. It's like taking a baby, an innocent baby, and putting the baby's hand into, into, into fire. Every time you tell a lie, every time you do an act, you sin, you do something that's wrong, it's like taking your soul, which is your soul is like an innocent child. Your soul is pure, a piece of the divine essence. It's taking your soul and putting, putting it into fire. Your soul never gets used to it. The pain, the anguish, it's like a crematorium. It's like a spiritual concentration. The soul never gets used to it. You can drown your conscience. You can ignore your conscience. You can, but your soul, deep down inside, your soul can never disappear. Your soul can go into hiding, but your soul never disappears. So deep down, there's an inner angst that's gnawing away at you. Existential angst. Your soul is suffering. Your soul is in pain. When the Jew studies Torah and does a mitzvah or prays or does an act of tzedakah, at that moment, it's like, it's like you've released the soul from this concentration camp. You've taken the soul from the concentration camp, the prince, the princess, and you've brought it back to the royal palace. Now the soul feels at home. This is a moment of truth. As he explained earlier, don't think you're being a hypocrite. How can I study Torah? How can I do mitzvah? How can I pray when I'm such a sinner? When I'm such a terrible person, I've done such terrible things. What am I doing here praying and studying and doing a mitzvah? Who am I, who am I faking? Who am I kidding? I'm being hypocritical. Dr. Rebbe says, no. Imagine the kindness that you're doing. You've given your soul a reprieve, a rest. You've taken it out of the crematorium and brought it back to the palace at least for one hour a day. You should be joyful. You should be thankful. What kind of favor you've done to your soul. You've taken it out of hell, a living hell, from its existential angst, its anguish, its constant suffering, and you've brought it back home. For a moment, you've relieved its suffering, and not only relieved its suffering, the soul luxuriates. For a moment, it's saying Hebrew words, it's praying, it's, it's studying Torah, it's doing a mitzvah. Thank you. When the prayer is over, then I'll go back. <laughs> go back and tell. So that's a joy, that's a personal joy. That the soul is coming back home. But here he's saying something deeper. Your ultimate intent should be that it's an act of self-sacrifice. Surrendering my soul to Hashem. It's not about me. It's about Hashem. Because that same scenario, yes, the soul is joyful that it's coming back home. It's coming back to the palace. You've redeemed your soul from, from, from the Auschwitz, from spiritual Auschwitz, and you've brought it back home. But imagine the joy of the king. Imagine Hashem's joy, the king's joy. That you've redeemed his prince who is languishing, languishing in a concentration camp. And you've redeemed the, the divine, the royal prince, and you've brought him back home. Imagine the joy. Imagine how grateful Hashem is to you for saving his prince, for redeeming him, even for a minute, even for a few moments. That should be your joy. How much joy you're giving Hashem. How much pleasure you're giving Hashem. How much nachas you're giving Hashem. When we pray the silent prayer, the Shemona Esrei, the, our rendezvous with Hashem, our moment of intimacy with Hashem, our appointment with Hashem, and we take three steps forward, we can't wait to come to Hashem. Hashem can't wait till we come to Him. More than we are eager to come to Hashem, Hashem is waiting for that moment. My child is coming home. The moment of Shemoneshri, the moment of contact, Hashem, my child, my prince, that I sent into such a faraway place, in such a God-forsaken place, 
in a spiritual hell, in a spiritual concentration camp. And my soul, my, my piece of me, my prince, my royal princess, is coming back home. Hashem can't wait. The joy that Hashem has for this reunion. Imagine if you were able to capture this reunion on film. It would be so dramatic. The prince is being reunited. The captive prince that was in captivity is being reunited with, the, with his father in heaven, with the divine, with the king. Imagine the incredible joy that Hashem has. We can't even imagine. That should be your joy. That should motivate you. That should excite you. That I'm happy for Hashem. Because I know I can feel Hashem's happiness. Hashem is so excited. Hashem is so joyful. Hashem is so grateful. That's what motivates me. I want to surrender my soul to Hashem because I know how much pleasure it gives Hashem. That, I've, that His Prince has been redeemed. His soul has been redeemed. So that should be your motivation. Just to have a nachas for Hashem. To give Hashem nachas. To give, to give Hashem gratification. I'm not talking about my own nachas. I also have nachas. I also have pleasure. But that's not the ultimate motivation. The ultimate motivation should be for Hashem's pleasure. Chapter 31, the author Rebbe prepared the soul's return to God through Torah and prayer to the return of a captive prince to his overjoyed father, the king. For a Jewish soul is God's child. Hence his great joy when it is reunited with him after its imprisonment within the body and the animal soul, accordingly, as a Jew prepares to study Torah and engage in prayer, his spiritual objective should be that this reunion come about for the sole purpose of bringing joy to the soul's father, the king. However, the Rebbe explained earlier that in order to attain this degree of selfless love, one must have attained an extremely lofty degree of spirituality, a level possessed only by tzaddikim. How then is this to be expected of every Jew? The Ultra Rebbe therefore goes on to explain that when the purpose of one's service is simply to restore his soul to its source and not the souls of all Jews to their source, then this lofty decree of selfless love is not a prerequisite. The latent love of God possessed by all Jews is sufficient to cause one to desire to bring him in this manner of gratification. Now this intent solely to bring gratification to Hashem by returning one's own soul to Hashem is genuine and truly and completely sincere in every Jewish nefesh at all times and at every hour. By virtue of the natural love, which is the heritage bequeathed to us by our ancestors. Nevertheless, one should not be satisfied merely with this level of service. One needs to establish set periods for reflecting on the greatness of God in order to attain intellectually generated fear and love. And with all that, perhaps one may succeed in attaining such fear and love as has been stated previously. Thus, although one already possesses a hidden love of God, which enables him to study Torah and pray out of a readiness to surrender his very soul, he should still seek to attain that level of fear and love of God that is born of his own intellectual endeavor. So he's saying that um, this intent 
in order to give Hashem nachas, that you're studying Torah, you're doing mitzvot, to surrender your soul to Hashem, because surrendering your soul to Hashem gives Hashem tremendous joy, that's genuine. Because by nature, deep down, every one of us loves Hashem. We have an innate love to Hashem. And therefore, to give nachas to Hashem, to give Hashem gratification, this is genuine. We we genuinely want to please Hashem. We want Hashem to smile. We want Hashem to be happy. To have nachas. So if we know that delivering our soul, surrendering our soul to Hashem will give Hashem tremendous joy, tremendous pleasure, then that's a genuine motivation. Although we said earlier in the chapter that the motivation of connecting your soul as a representative of the Jewish people, of the Jewish whole, that intention, that's not so genuine because that's a very lofty intention that's going beyond your own individual self. That's thinking of the whole, the bigger picture, and there's something greater than myself. To say that that's a genuine motivation for us, it's not such a genuine motivation for us. But nevertheless, it's a necessary motivation. A Jew always has to think about the whole, not just about yourself. You can't be spiritually selfish. You have to realize that we are part of the Jewish whole, and we always have to be thinking. Even when you're growing personally and individually and spiritually, and you have a relationship with Hashem, you can't, for one moment, you can't forget about your fellow Jew. You can't just think about yourself. While you're growing and, and, and delving and deepening your own relationship with Hashem, you always have to have in mind my fellow Jew. How can I help another Jew? I'm part of the Jewish people. My growth has to be connected to, to the whole Jewish people. I am growing, the Jewish people are growing. It's all connected. When you meet a Jew, always think about how can I help them? Physically and also spiritually. I'm there to help. I'm not just about myself. You can't just live a spiritually selfish life. You can be very spiritual. But it's very selfish. You can't. Being Jewish by definition means you're part of a community. It's not just about me, myself, and I. There's other people. You have to always think about other people. Even your own personal growth. So even though it's not genuine, but nevertheless that must be part of your thinking. It must. Otherwise you can't be a complete Jew. But this motivation that he's discussing here, this is 100% genuine. That you are ready to, to surrender your soul to Hashem. And that it excites you. It motivates you. Because you know how much happiness is going to make Hashem. How much is going to give Hashem so much happiness, so much gratification. That's a genuine motivation. Because deep down we all have this love for Hashem. And we'll do anything that we can for Hashem. But nevertheless, he says a person, a person should not just rely on this natural love, inherited love that we have for Hashem. It's important for a person to develop your own understanding. Develop your mind. Understand Hashem as much as you can. And as best as possible, you'll be able to achieve a love that's based on that understanding. The the love that we all have naturally, that you don't have to work on, that's there. You just have to reveal it. You don't have to create it. It's there. We're born with it. We're Jewish. We have a Jewish soul. We have a Jewish connection. It's there. We get it. We're born with it. But it's not enough. You also have to develop. We all have to be like Abraham. Abraham wasn't born with it, right? Abraham had to discover it. 
using his mind. He had to discover. He opened his mind. He started thinking. He started questioning. And his mind, he opened his mind to Hashem. Till he discovered Hashem. He discovered the reality of Hashem. That's why the convert is called the child of Abraham. The convert, you have to respect the convert. Torah says you have to love the convert because in a way the convert is like Abraham. It's much more impressive. We were born into it. So we inherited it. The convert has to discover it on his own. And um, so every one of us, in a certain sense, has to be like Abraham. We can't just rely on our parents or this inheritance, this rich inheritance. Not enough. Yes, you can live off this inheritance for the rest of your life. But, you know, even a person who inherits wealth wants to accomplish something on his own. He doesn't just want to be a receiver, an inheritor. He wants to make a mark. So you have to engage your individuality, your personality, your mind. You have to figure it out for yourself. You have, to, you have to discover it for yourself. It has to engage your mind. You have to be excited about it. It has to be your personal God, your personal discovery. So that has to be the ideal. Use your mind, engage your mind, engage your personality, individuality, until you develop a very mature love, a very profound love based on your understanding. But the love that we all inherit, that you don't have to work on. That's there. All you have to do is reveal it. You have to tap into it, touch it, connect with it. But that love is genuine, 100% genuine. And everyone has it. So, uh, you know, when it's talking about uh, don't be satisfied merely with your own level of service, and you have to set periods or establish set periods, does that have to do with including flawless for real? In other words, is that why you're doing it? In other words, words, this attaining intellectually generated fear and love, that has to do with the union of flawless for real? I mean, it's something that's not stated, but... I don't know, because he said earlier that that's only a level of, of a tzaddik. It's a very lofty level. Even if you develop an intellectual love for Hashem, that still won't help you to genuinely feel the sense of Kal Yisrael. That's a very lofty level. That's a level of a tzaddik. Um, that's not something that we can accomplish. You know, that's a one or two in every generation. For genuine, for it to be genuine, a tzaddik is genuinely selfless. How many people can say, can we say, are genuinely selfless? Honestly, you know, we can delude ourselves. Our capacity for delusion, self-delusion, is infinite. No, it's scary. It's hard. It's scary. Five ninety-nine. Yeah, right. If, however, he is truly desire unification of all Jewish souls with their source in God, a much deeper love is required. Love untainted by yeah, but that's the that's the love of the tzaddik, a love of a tzaddik. He says who's, who's genuinely selfless. You know, it's like the story. There was a person who was looking for the truth. A person who dedicated his life looked for the truth. He sacrificed everything, gave up his business, gave up his family, and traveled around the world looking for the truth. Went from one guru to another guru, from one school to another school. He's, he's ready to travel from one end of the world to the other. He's looking for the truth. He must have the truth. Anyway, and he couldn't find it. Wherever he went, he wasn't, wasn't happy. He couldn't find the truth. He's looking and looking. It's not the truth. Finally, he hears, if you want, to look, you want to find the truth, go to this and this town. You're going to find the truth. So it's at the other end of the world. He travels. 
with great hardship, but he'll do anything for the truth. He comes to town, he walks in, and he sees a huge house, and in the house is tables, and every table is rows and rows of candles. Candles. He doesn't see anyone around, he has no idea what this is about. How's he going to find the truth there? What is this? Tables and rows and candles. Finally, he sees the caretakers wandering around, taking care of the place. He stops him. He says, what is this? He says, you see, every table is a different city. Every candle is a different person living in the city. You see the candles that are full? These are babies that were just born. They have a whole life ahead of them. You see the candles that are about to flicker out? These are people that are about to die. And you have middle-aged, half, half candles. And the caretaker goes about doing his business. He's very curious. He finds his table, his city. He finds his candle. As the expression is in Yiddish, he sees his candles about to flicker out. So he loses himself. He says, wait a minute. He looks around his candle. He knows the people. This one, his candle is full, is semi-full, three-quarters full. I know these people. These people are, are worthless. Their lives are meaningless. My life has meaning. My life is important. I sacrifice my business. I sacrifice my family. I sacrifice everything for the truth. These people are leading mediocre, meaningless lives. See, what harm could it do if I'll borrow a day from this one, a day from this one, a borrow from this one, a drop there? They won't even know the difference. They'll die a day earlier. It won't, what matter? It won't matter. No one will tell. But, but my life has meaning. The more years I have, the more I can discover the truth. So he's about to start pouring. <laughs> First candle. And suddenly he sees, he feels a hand tapping his shoulder. He says, that's the truth. He couldn't handle the truth. Once the truth hit home, and it was about me, it was affected me, he couldn't handle the truth. He was about to lie. You know, fudge things a little, make it a little better for myself. He says, this is a person who's dedicated to the truth, who sacrificed everything for the truth. But at the end of the day, he's selfish. So even the greatest spiritual seeker at the end of the day, you're selfish. Spirituality is the ultimate ego trip. Let's be honest. Let's not delude ourselves that I'm righteous and I'm a saint and I'm so lofty and I'm so selfless and I really care about the other one's pinky more than I care or the other one's life more than I care about my own pinky. Who are we kidding? My toenail is a little out of place. The whole world comes to an end. Someone else is, is dying. What do I care? I mean, let's, let's, not, let's be honest. Let's not delude ourselves. So the, the intent that we learned earlier, that's for the real tzaddik, the Rebbe of the generation, the Moses of the generation, who really cares about another Jew more than he cares about himself. Is that you and I? If we, if we thought that, we would be completely delusionary. Let's be honest. I mean, I can speak for myself. Maybe others in the room, maybe others in the room uh, are at that level. I don't know. I haven't met anyone yet, except the Rebbe. But, but when a person... But nevertheless, his point is that even though we're not in that level, but we have to act accordingly. We have to act like we are in that level. 
we are not on that level. And let's not, let's not kid ourselves and don't delude yourself. He hates people who delude themselves. He hates people who reach levels that it's not their level. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. The person always has to know yourself. Be honest with yourself. Be genuine. Don't, don't try to be a saint, an angel. Don't be something that you're not. But at the same time, we have to act like we were the tzaddik. As it says in the Medrash, everyone has to say to themselves, When will my actions reach the level of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Listen carefully. It doesn't say, when will I reach the level of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? When will I reach the level of Abraham? Never! Because I'm not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whom are we kidding? It's like saying, when am I going to be at the level of Einstein? Really, you'll never be on the level of Einstein. And anyone who deludes himself that he will be is delusional. You're not Abraham, you never will be. That's not, what, that's not what it says. It says, when will my actions reach the actions? I can live like Abraham, even though I'm not Abraham, and I'm not selfless. And to be honest, I care more about myself than I care about Kal Yisrael and the other Jew. But nevertheless... I can act like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I can act selfless. And I can make it part of my life that I'm always thinking about another Jew. I always have a pair of tefillin in my hand that I can meet another Jew. I can offer him to put on tefillin. I can always have an extra Shabbat candle. If I meet another Jewish woman, I can say, here's a Shabbat candle. Why don't you start lighting a candle? Or I can always be there to help another person. I'm always thinking about what can I do besides my own spiritual growth? What can I do to help another person? That we could do. That, that he does demand of us. That he demands of every one of us. So even though the intent is not genuine, so who cares? But the act is genuine. Because the truth is we are connected. The truth is we are part of something larger than ourselves. So live that way. Act that way. Even if it's not genuine. So what? But it's the truth. But here he's saying, what is genuine is your own personal connection with Hashem. That is genuine. You're ready to surrender your life for Hashem and ultimately after 120 years when a person passes away he does you do surrender your life to Hashem and you can live your life accordingly now every time you study Torah every time you do a mitzvah you are surrendering your life to Hashem and he says your intent should be not only because you're coming back home and you're redeeming your own soul from, from its own purgatory from its existential angst but you're doing it because you know how much satisfaction it's going to give Hashem. You know how much pleasure it's going to give Hashem to have His royal prince, His royal princes back home, redeemed. Every time you study Torah, every time you're doing a mitzvah, you're redeeming the royal prince and royal princess, taking it out of the concentration camp and bringing it back home. And just imagine the infinite pleasure that gives to Hashem. And that's, that makes me happy. Knowing that Hashem is happy, it gives Hashem so much satisfaction. When you sit in shul and you're praying, when you're studying Torah, you're doing a mitzvah. It gives Hashem so much satisfaction. It's like the story of the Alter Rebbe. There was a, a chassid who used to be observant, and then he lost his path. But his fellow chassidim tried to draw him back in with a lot of love. Draw him back into the synagogue. But after many years, they saw no effect in him. <laughs> he remained the same low life, the same playboy, the same bum he was before. They didn't see any change. So they felt discouraged. They asked Alter Rebbe, we're, we're extending all this effort and we don't see any... So Alter Rebbe says, let me explain to you. If it res- as a result of you, you're loving him and drawing him in, 
Instead of thinking 10 terrible thoughts that day, instead he only thought 9 terrible thoughts that day. You know how much infinite pleasure that gives Hashem? That his child, instead of thinking 10 terrible thoughts, only had 9 terrible thoughts. You can't even imagine. It's unfathomable. It's an act of pidyan shvuyim. You redeemed him. You brought him back. For that moment, he didn't do something wrong. For that moment, for him, it was an act of self-sacrifice. For him, he did something genuine. He did it for Hashem. Why didn't he think, why did he only think nine instead of ten? Because because of being surrounded by all that warmth and all that love and all that goodness, he contained himself at least once a day. He didn't do something wrong. You can't imagine the infinite pleasure that gives Hashem. And the same is true with our own personal soul. Every time we do an act of Torah, every time we do a mitzvah, every time we refrain from doing something wrong, we can't even imagine the infinite pleasure it gives Hashem. So that's my motivation. And it's a genuine motivation. And it's not a motivation you have to create, you have to manufacture. It's not artificial. It's genuine because naturally we have a love for Hashem. We care for Hashem. We love Hashem. Therefore, knowing how much satisfaction it gives Hashem, that makes me happy and that's my motivation and that's fine. Then he says, that in general, it's not enough for a person to live off his riches, live off your parents' riches. Not, not nice <laughs> just to live off your parents' riches. You have to make a contribution. What's your contribution? What are you adding to the conversation? You're just living off the fat of the land. You're just living off the sacrifice of your parents. You're just living off the inheritance of your parents, of your ancestors, that you received a holy soul. You were born with a holy soul. You're Jewish or innately, inherently. You have this holy soul from the moment you're born. You have to accomplish something on your own. What have you accomplished? What have you brought to the table? What have you added? So use your mind. You have to add something. And there's no guarantees, but at least, maybe, if you'll, if you'll use your mind and engage your individuality and your personality and your unique character, you'll, you'll add something. You'll develop a very rich, a very mature and a very rich love that's based on you. It's a very internal, you'll internalize the love. It'll become part of you. It'll, it'll be for real. It'll be who you really are. A real love. A love that you can relate to. It's you. It's not this otherworldly, esoteric soul that you've inherited. Yes, we all have that. But it's not me. It's not the real me speaking. You know, it's not my human me speaking. The ideal is that you should develop a love that you can internalize. That you, your human personality and your human characteristic, and your human individuality, you should feel a relationship to Hashem. Just like Abraham developed. Just like Sarah developed. You have that capacity. You have that ability. Moshe and Aaron said it's like we are not. We are nothing, 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 nothing. That's the, uh, the famous story of the Maggid of Mizrich, Rabbi Dov Ber. I'll conclude with that story. Rabbi Dov Ber, um, the, he was, before he became Rebbe, he was very, very poor. And one of the Hasidim came to visit him and he couldn't believe how poor he was. Such a illustrious rabbi, one of the greatest rabbis of Europe. There wasn't a single published Jewish book that he hadn't studied 102 times. He went through every book. He studied it 102 times. He was like a, a genius. And here he was studying. He was living in such poverty. His children had nothing to wear, nothing to eat. And the chassid, this chassid was very wealthy. He says, Rebbe, Look how you live. 
So the Rebbe says, let me ask you, do you own a bedroom set? The Rebbe, of course, the nicest in Europe. Do you own a dining room set? He says, of course, the best that money could buy. He says, where is it? What do you have with you? He says, I just have a suitcase. He says, where's, where's your furniture? Where's... He says, Rebbe, that's at home. <laughs> Here, I'm traveling. I just have my suitcase. So the Rebbe says, see, my home is in heaven. That's my home. That's where my furniture is. That's where I'm permanent. Here, I'm going through this world. I'm here. I'm traveling. I'm on a mission. So I live, off, I live out of my suitcase. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have too many possessions. I don't... That's not... I don't know attached. I know back home I have all my furniture and I have all my wealth. That's who I am. And that's what uh, Yaakov tells when he meets Esau. He says, I'm love and garti. Love and I live. But I was a gear. I was like passing through. I was there 20 years. He married. He had his children there. But I'm passing through. That's not who I am. But Tayag Mitzvah Shamarti. The 630 Mitzvah. That's my home. And that's what it says when he came back to the land of Israel. It says, uh, he, created a, he built a home for himself. And for his possessions, for his cattle, for he made a little hut. In other words, for the material things that you possess, that people possess, that's a hut. That's my temporary dwelling. That's not how I define myself. That's not who I am. How do I define myself? What's my home? Where do I live? I live the 613 mitzvah. That's my home. That's my core. That's my essence. That's when I come alive. That's when I'm back in the palace. That's where I came from. That's where I'm going back to. That's my home. That's my furniture. That's why I feel at home. Comfortable. Here I'm passing through. I'm passing through all my physical, material possessions and acquisitions and associations. I'm passing through. This is my suitcase. This is not how I define myself. It's not how I identify myself. That's what he calls Mesirat Nefesh, surrendering my soul to Hashem. It's, it's about my connection to Hashem. It's not about what I possess, it's not about what I own, it's not about how much I have, how much I have in the bank account. That's not my riches. My riches are not my bank account. My riches are how much Torah I have, how many mitzvot I have, how much selflessness, how much goodness I have. These are my riches. This is, this is eternal. This lasts forever. When I surrender my soul to Hashem and reconnect my soul to Hashem and my mind is engaged in Torah and mitzvot, this is who I am. So every time you do an act of Torah and mitzvot, it's an act of Mesirat Nefesh. It's an act of surrendering your soul to Hashem, coming back home, reconnecting. That's a genuine moment. So you can imagine if you can have this genuine moment every day of your life or throughout the day, we have 613 opportunities to have genuine moments. Imagine, what an opportunity. Instead of looking at Torah mitzvot as a sacrifice or something that's difficult, you do it with love. You, you, you yearn, you anticipate, you look forward. You, it gives you joy in knowing how much joy it gives Hashem because it's a genuine moment. And there's nothing more satisfying in life than living a life that's true to yourself, that's genuine, and that's real. So for a Jew, Torah, Mitzvah, this is our home, this is our life, this is how we define ourselves, this is when we come alive. This is the joy, this is the intent, the kavana, the lishma, the intent that we must inject the Torah and the Mitzvah with. When we study Torah and do Mitzvah with this intent, and every hour and the hour, we stop for a moment and remind ourselves, and refocus and recenter, remind ourselves what it's all about. This connects us, and then the Torah that we do soars and is elevated, and we bring godliness and light into the world, and we illuminate the world, and we transform the world, and make this world into a godly place to be continued. <laughs>
The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golos, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golos once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself.